In Luke chapter 16, we're going to cover the chapter in two parts. The first part this week, the second part next week. And I'll talk hopefully a little bit more about the second part coming up. But I want you to focus in on this story that Jesus tells, this parable, to begin Luke chapter 16. Notice it here, starting verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. So he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now, Especially from the beginning right there at the start of verse 1, this seems to be a different occasion in the same general flow of Jesus being on his way to Jerusalem, but a different specific occasion than we saw in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, if you remember, Jesus spoke surrounded by... Um, sinners and tax collectors that had come to him. And then he answered the objection of the religious leaders who were around them and criticized him. That basically makes up Luke chapter 15. But now here in chapter 16, we see it written in verse 1 that he spoke this to his disciples. So he's giving a word to his disciples. But I want you to notice something else. By the time you get to verse 14, if you look at verse 14 there, you notice that the religious leaders who were not his disciples were also listening. Verse 14 says, Now to the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples for sure, but he's not speaking only to his disciples. The religious leaders are there and Jesus well knows that they're listening in. So here he is speaking to these religious leaders, speaking to his own disciples, and he's speaking using a very strange parable. I mean, this is one of the strangest parables that Jesus ever uttered. Because this is a parable where a thoroughly um, dishonorable man is set up as being an example. Did you notice what the man did? Look at it here. Verse 1 says this. There was a certain rich man who had a steward. Now, a steward was a manager, especially a manager of somebody else's resources or property. And in the story that Jesus told, the steward's boss, the man who actually owned all the stuff, this man, the rich man, as it says in verse 1, he heard that his steward had cheated him. Verse 1 says that he was wasting his goods. And so he was going to call him to account. Hey, Mr. Embezzler-in-Chief, now's the time for you to pay the piper. I found out. You've been found out. We did an audit. The books have been discovered. Here it is. So even though this man was an embezzler, now it's the time. Verse 2 says this. Give an account of your stewardship. That's what the master demanded of the steward. 
And I want you to consider that just for a moment, those words, give an account of your stewardship. Have you ever thought that those are words that every human being is going to hear before God? I mean, if you want to say believers, those who are not yet believers, everyone is going to hear those words. I'm going to hear those words. God has entrusted to me a stewardship, hasn't he? Hasn't God given me certain things? God has given me time. God has given me talents. God has given me substance. God has given me influence. And I am going to be held to account before God how I have used each and every one of those things. Now, just to take some of the focus off me, that's you too. You also are going to be called to account. You're going to hear those words that the steward said. Give an account of your stewardship. And for each one of us, the stewardship that we have right now is going to come to an end. One day, my voice is going to fail. One time, my mental faculties aren't going to be sharp enough to stand in front of people and teach. Don't debate whether or not that day has already come. Whatever strength I have to preach, it's not going to last forever. I'm going to have to give account of whatever stewardship I've done up to that time. You know, whatever wealth you have in this world to use uh, for, for your own needs and for God's glory, that's a transient thing, right? You have that stewardship now. You don't even know if you're going to have it a year from now. Especially in the economic times that we live, there's so much uncertainty. You see, if Jesus does not come first, which I pray that he does, but if Jesus does not come for us first, we will all die and one day face that reckoning where we will have to give account. And if he comes for us first, then we're all going to have to be in that place immediately at that time. Now, considering that, look at this very dishonorable man, the unjust steward. Verse 3 says this, that when he was reckoned with this idea that he's going to have to give account, he says, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I'm going to be out of a job. I've been an embezzler. What am I going to do? He says, I can't go out and dig holes. Forget that. I'm too old for that. He says, I'm too proud. I'm too ashamed to beg. What am I going to do to provide for my own needs? So what did he do? Verse 5 says, he called every one of his master's debtors to him. The steward made friends with all his master's uh, debtors. Everybody who owed the master money. We read it in the parable, right? You owe him for 100, you know, barrels or whatever it was of oil. Let's settle it for 50 right now. Now, in a way, this was cheating the master even more. But yet the steward was wise in using his present position to provide for himself in the future. He goes, you know what? By 5 o'clock today, my master's going to come home, and I'm not going to have the authority to settle these accounts. I've got to settle as many of them as I can to my favor right here, right now, so that these people will love me and take me into their homes once I'm out of a job. Now, the fascinating thing about this is look at it there in verse 8. He says, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. You see, the master didn't approve of the conduct of the unjust steward, but he did compliment the man's shrewdness. And then Jesus added this thought. It's a very provocative thought. 
that the businessmen of his day, I think that's what Jesus is referring to when he calls them the sons of this world, just the normal, everyday, workaday people, that the businessmen of his day were actually more wise, they were more bold, they were more forward-thinking in the management of what they had, they were more shrewd than the people of God were in managing what they had, those being the sons of light. And you have to say that That this, in some ways, some people consider to be one of Jesus' most difficult parables. Because he uses a dishonorable man in sort of a favorable light. Yet I think it's a very powerful and very effective illustration of the point that Jesus wanted to make. Think about your next station. Wherever you are now, you're going to be called to account and you're going to have a different situation. Now here's the good thing. You can prepare for that right now. Just like this unwise steward, or this unjust steward, we could call him. Just in the same way that he said, I'm going to use my present position to prepare for my future certainty. It is certain that I'll be out of a job. So I'm going to use where I'm at right here, right now to prepare for it. I I could dance around it a while. Should I just bring the point home very clear to myself and to you? Each and every one of us has a, present, has a future position that we're going to be faced with. It's called eternity. This life that we live in the present, it is just a moment. It is like an eye blink compared to what we will have for all of eternity. I know it seems long. We're sort of deceived by this, don't we? Usually we just think, man, our life goes on forever and look at all the time behind me and look at all the time before me. What's the big hurry? Time, time, time. I've got so much of it. But then there comes the time when you just realize that, as the psalmist said, our days are like a vapor. It's just, whoa, it's there and it's gone. Now, if you consider it in the scope of eternity, how crazy is that? Now, here's the great news. Just like that dishonorable steward, you can use where you are right now to prepare for eternity. You can. You can live a life that has an eternal awareness An eternal, I know this sounds kind of weird and almost Eastern to say this, but you'll know what I mean. An eternal consciousness. Eternity is in your conscience. And so often what the devil just loves to do, although I'm not going to blame it all on the devil, the world and the flesh also have a big part in it. But let's just say that the world, the flesh, and the devil, they all conspire together to keep us so focused on the here and now that we give rarely a thought to eternity. Whereas Jesus is saying, no, Right here, right now, you can do something to prepare for eternity. Now, notice this. The assessment that Jesus gave in verse 8 is still true. The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. If we pursued the kingdom of God with the same vigor, with the same zeal that the children of this world pursue their profits and pursue their pleasures, it's, it would be a revolution for the world. Now look, let me say, I think it's a wonderful thing how energetic the church is to spread the gospel all over the world. I'm really stoked that in this church there's a passion for reaching out in our community. What, just this last week? What was a tremendous testimony? Many people came to Christ through the street work that they were doing at the market just this week out there on State Street. It's a wonderful thing. I'm grateful for the evangelistic zeal. I'm grateful for the missionary work. I'm grateful for all that. But honestly, 
Can anybody in this room say that we pursue the world for the sake of Jesus Christ with the same zeal that a businessman pursues profits? How about this? What is more widely known in the world today? Jesus Christ or Coca-Cola? I think you'll find Coca-Cola in places that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so, wow, shouldn't we realize that we've got something to learn from the energy, from the vigor, from the passion of those who do things? I'm not even saying that it's wrong what they do. But we can have even greater, a higher call to pursue things for the kingdom of God. I like what Alexander McLaren said about this. He said, go to the men of the world, thou Christian, and do not let it be said that the devil's scholars are more studious and earnest than Christ's disciples. Well, that's how it should be for us. We should be more vigorous and energetic. Now, because he's making this parable about money, and especially about the idea of being wise regarding financial things, look at it here in verse 9. He says, and I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Well, you could almost say that he's summing up the whole point of the parable right there, isn't he? I mean, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. Jesus is simply transferring the idea of the parable, reminding us that we need to use our present resources for future good, especially eternal good. And this is just the mentality that we have to have. Now, you notice the phrase there? Wasn't that interesting there in verse 9 where he used the phrase unrighteous mammon? Do you know what the word mammon means? It comes from the Aramaic word uh, mammon, which originally meant that in which one puts their trust. And so it came to mean money. Isn't that interesting? Or material things. Money and material things. That's what's represented by mammon. And Jesus called it, interestingly, unrighteous mammon. I like what Alexander, uh, or, um, what Adam Clark, excuse me, not Alexander, Adam Clark had to say about that. He said, riches, they're called unrighteous mammon because of these reasons. Because riches promise much and perform nothing. They excite hope and confidence and deceive in both. They make a man depend on them for happiness and they rob him of the salvation of God and of eternal glory. Isn't it interesting that for a lot of people, their wealth, their riches is a curse to them and not a blessing. And that's the sense in which he uses the idea of unrighteous mammon. But listen, Jesus is pointing us a way out. It doesn't have to be that way for me or for you. We can actually use the things that we have right now with an eternal perspective and those things that in the hands of other people might be unrighteous mammon. For us, it's a great blessing, as he said in verse 9, that they, when they fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Listen, the world is filled with financial planners and advisors. And I suppose it's just good stewardship to think carefully about what you're going to do with your money and how you're going to organize it and save it and spend it and give it and all the rest of it. But listen... When most Christians talk about wise money management, they forget the most important kind of investing, investing with an eye to eternity. So that what you do right now with your money does you good for eternity. And it's a beautiful thing. It transforms what we might call unrighteous mammon into glorious kingdom of God advancing money. Kind of brings my mind the story of of a... 
of a guy who was, well, it was an interesting thing some years ago. But there was some noted televangelist who was sort of shamefully trying to raise a bunch of money for some project or nothing. And it was really kind of grotesque. But eventually, uh, some man who owned racetracks, horse racing tracks, you know, and so he made all his money off of gambling and probably ruined families and all the rest of it. He ended up coming up with the money and he gave the man a large sum of money, you know, to put him over the top for his fundraising goal. And people were shocked by this. And they went and they asked this televangelist, they said, how can you take this money from this man who's gained it in such an unrighteous way? And I didn't agree with the televangelist, but I thought he had a pretty clever line. He said, listen, uh, people say that's the devil's money. Well, the devil's had it long enough. Let's see what the Lord can do with it. So without agreeing with that whole scenario, there's a principle there that we can understand. That what is in the hands of one person to be unrighteous mammon can be redeemed and can be used for something really good before God. You see, the most important thing is to invest your resources for the Lord now. Most of us want to wait for the day when we think we'll have enough. Right? Well, look, I, I know that I should invest into God's kingdom in some way now. I know that I should give. But you know what? I, there's just nothing. Really nothing? Again, the idea, whatever you can give now, give now, and you'll see that God transforms it, not only really by blessing your own financial stuff, but in a much greater way by investing in eternity by what you have. Now, in verse 10, he's going to touch on the point of why this is so important. Look at this. He says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? What a powerful principle is contained for us in verse 10, where it says plainly, he who is faithful in least is also faithful in much. You see, in these words of Jesus, money is considered to be one of the least things. So if you can't be faithful in what you do with your money, how can you ever really be trusted with spiritual authority among God's people or in his kingdom? You see, if one is false and unfaithful in their everyday life, it really doesn't matter if you project a Christian image. You're also false and unfaithful in your spiritual life. And no one should entrust you with what Jesus called true riches. That is, spiritual things and spiritual um, wealth, so to speak. That's why he says in verse 11, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will not commit to you, excuse me, who will commit to your trust the true riches? In this sense, those who are leaders among God's people must be good managers of their own money. They certainly don't have to be wealthy, God forbid, but they do need to be good managers of what God has given them. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to that question, who will commit to your trust true riches? There's a lot of Christians who actually are willing to commit spiritual authority and spiritual care to people who can't manage their own affairs well. And the Bible says these are the least things. Sometimes we get it turned all around. Like spiritual authority is a small thing and spiritual character and stewardship, that's a small thing. Boy, but how you manage your money, that's great. No, it's really just opposite. In God's kingdom... The basic thing is how you manage your resources. What God is really interested in is developing that character in men and women who can lead in a spiritual way. 
So God gives that test. But now notice this, verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is what I want you to notice, first of all, is that Jesus here said you cannot serve two masters. He didn't say you should not. He didn't say it's not a good idea. He didn't say like, well, let me discourage the practice. He said it's impossible. You can't do it. You think you're serving God and mammon, but no, actually you're just serving mammon because the Lord is a jealous God. And he says, I'm not going to have rivals to the throne in my kingdom. If you're going to serve mammon, then that'll be it. And so he says, you can't do it. You can't have these two masters at the same time. Now, certainly, Jesus spoke about the heart here. Many people would say, I love God. But the way that they serve money and materialism shows that, in fact, they serve a different master. Let me tell you a very simple principle. And I know this is heavy tonight. And I know I've got to just spell this out for you. I'm sort of duty-bound by to spell out what the Scriptures say. But do you want to know which way to tell if you're serving God or mammon? What will you sacrifice for? You know, think of an altar. And an altar and sacrifice has always been a measure of true spiritual devotion. A person will sacrifice unto their God. And when you see a person who will make great sacrifices in their life for the sake of mammon but they will not make sacrifices in their life for the sake of the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Isn't it apparent who their God is? No, 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 but I go to church every Sunday. Listen, but your life, it shows really where your God is. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, some people think that because they're not wealthy, because they don't have very much Woo, thank heavens I'm free from that. You know, right now you're just thinking, man, I am glad that Pastor David's laying it on those other people here tonight. But you know, if you think I serve mammon, you should take a look at my bank account. You'll see, that's no, no problem there. But friends, you surely realize that you don't have to be rich to serve mammon. That the poor have just as much problem with greed and covetousness as the rich do. Greed and covetousness are not restricted to the rich by any means. Greed and covetousness cannot be determined by how big or how small your bank account is. It's a heart issue. What we need to pray is that God would give us hearts that are lifted up beyond the everyday and have a focus, a connection to eternity. There's really a great statement that our friend John Trapp, right? We're quoting that old Puritan guy from what, like the 16th century, John Trapp. Okay, check this one out. I, I hope I quoted this. I hope it's on the screen. Here we go. The worldsling's wisdom as the ostrich's wings to make him outrun others upon the earth and in earthly things, but helps him never a whit towards heaven. All right, can I unpack that one for you? Because it's great. He goes, okay, here's Mr. Worldling, Mr. I serve mammon. It's just there on his business card. Well, you know, on the earth, he's like an ostrich who can run really fast. But when it comes time to soar to heaven, does the ostrich's wings do him any good? 
No, he's only equipped to run fast on earth. Ladies and I would suggest God wants you and I to be like eagles. That we can soar to heavenly places and not be restricted, not be earthbound. So the next time you see somebody else who's just living their life for mammon, that's all it is for them, material and money and, you know, on and on. And the next time you see that, I just want you to think, ostrich's wings. That's all it is for them. It's just like the wings of an eye. They're not going anywhere with what they have right there. All right, before we move on to verse 14, there's just one other thing that I have to say. Do you realize that this is perhaps the strongest and clearest statement in the Bible against polygamy? Absolutely. No man can serve two masters. (laughs) Oh, come on now. Come on, that's a Bible joke, isn't it? Come on. Really? Come on. Oh, wow, it's a tough crowd tonight. No, that's a good Bible joke. All right, verse 14. (laughs) All right, Lord, help us, please. All right, verse 14 is actually shocking. Okay, come back. You're, you're in with the crowd. You've heard Jesus say this, and you're like blown away because especially in Jewish culture at that time, just as it is in our culture today, oftentimes to have great material resources was seen to be the automatic sign of God's blessing. All right, well, look, I mean, of course God is with them. Look at how rich he is. I mean, that's a thinking. It carries over in today, but it was very strong in Jesus' day. So you got all these people, especially these religious leaders who are just on the edge of their seat, and listen to verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Isn't that shocking to read in verse 14? That they derided him. There they are, the Son of God teaching in perfect wisdom and in perfect love. And as he unpacks these spiritual principles that are for us to live by and make our, just everything that we have by, there is as Jesus unpacks it all before them, they mock him. They deride him. Why? Because even despite their religious prominence, there they were, lovers of money. That's what they were into. And so they derided him. I read somewhere that the word that's translated derided there literally means that they turned up their noses at him. They just, ah, they mocked him and derided him. What did Jesus say in response? Look at it here in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Listen, any one of us can justify ourselves before men. And some people have a great skill in doing that. Matter of fact, they're very slick. They have a great manipulative way. You can't box them into a corner. There's nothing that they do that they can't find an excuse for one way or another. Oh, they know how to justify themselves before men. But listen, God knows their heart. Let me say that to you again and just see how it impacts you. God knows your heart. Now, for some of us, that's a great comfort. Lord, you know, um, I mess up. I, I sin. You know I struggle. You know I'm weak. But, Lord, you know my heart. And that's a comfort, isn't it? But sometimes it's a curse to know that God knows your heart. Lord, you know I know how to put on the show. You know I know how to sit here among God's people and look really nice. But if they only knew, Lord, If they only knew what my life was really like. 
And your whole life is based on this image. Let me just say, friend, and I mean with all compassion, God knows your heart. And sometimes that's not good news. Sometimes it means it wasn't good news in this context, was it? And so it meant they had to get right with God. Jesus is trying to correct them in this verse 15. He says, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, God judges our hearts with a different sets of values. Men may honor somebody because of their wealth or because of their public display of spirituality, because of the kind of image, but God knows. And we just got to realize that the way that God judges people isn't always the way that we judge them. We find it far too easy to judge on the basis of outward appearance. We find it far too easy to judge just on the basis of what we can see. How many times have you judged a person rather harshly in your heart or actually in your actions, and then you kind of find out the backstory? You kind of find out where they came from. And you realize, listen, this person that I think is so far off, yeah, they may be off, but look at where they came from. Look at what they had to battle against. They've come a much further way than I ever have. How often that's happened. So Jesus cautions us, what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Listen, he says this, verse 16, 17, 18, and we'll end with these here tonight. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is fascinating. You've got to hang with me on this. First, starting in verse 16, Jesus says something fascinating. He says that the law and the prophets were until John. Jesus indicates here that the ministry of John the Baptist marked a dividing point in God's eternal plan. You could almost say that John the Baptist was a transitional person. One foot in the old covenant, one foot in the new covenant. But he's sort of the dividing line right there. Everything's different before him and everything's different after him because the ministry of the Messiah has come. And since that time, the good news of a new covenant is presented. And it's an order that is different than what man expected, but it is an order that fulfills the law of God. Now Jesus says in verse 16, that since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Here he's saying that you've got to have that spirit of sort of a warrior or a soldier. Listen, if you want the kingdom of God, you've got to have this idea, I'm going to press into it. You're not going to slip into the kingdom of God. Whoops. Wow, didn't know that happened. Although, listen, let me say this. I just said it and I'm going to take some of that back. In the life experience of some people, it feels like that. But if you notice from one point to another point, I I, I heard the story of the conversion of a very famous man. I won't say his name because it's not really relevant. But a very famous man, he told the story of his conversion. And, And this is how he explained it. He said, I started going to church and I sat in the pew and I looked up at that man and I said, I don't agree with hardly anything he's saying. And then I found a year later, I sat in the same pew, and I found myself agreeing with everything that he said. And and somewhere along the way, but still, there was this work of saying, no, there's an effort, there's a push, there's a battle to get in. But yet he wasn't aware of that specific marking point. But listen, what Jesus is suggesting here is that, notice verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. 
You see, he's speaking of the smallest mark in the law of God and how none of it will pass away. None of it fades. This is what Jesus is trying to emphasize. Yes, I brought a new order. Yes, I bring a new covenant. Yes, it started with the ministry of John. He's that transitional person. But this is what you need to understand is that the law of God is of effect in the new covenant as well as the old. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass away until it's all fulfilled. You see, this new order that we press into, it's not an order of anarchy and rebellion. It's an order of submission and obedience to God. His new order fulfills the law. It doesn't neglect it. And that's why in verse 18, Jesus gives this example of fulfilling the law. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. You say, that's kind of out of place here. Jesus is giving this as an example of the kind of law that does not fade away under the new covenant. Jesus is simply repeating a law that was at its basis in the Old Testament. And he goes, you know what? That law is still valid. You see, some rabbis in that day taught a very easy kind of divorce. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. We find it in the writings of the ancient rabbis. Literally, they said that if a wife burned her husband's breakfast, that was grounds for divorce. Here's another one. If the husband finds another woman more attractive, that's grounds for divorce. Doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the institution of marriage there, does it? Well, Jesus said, no, no, it's not that way at all. And Jesus here taught the ideal regarding marriage and divorce. But listen, let me say this. This is one verse among many that Jesus spoke on this issue of marriage and divorce. I can imagine somebody being driven to despair if they only had this verse, if this was the only thing that Jesus or the New Testament ever said about marriage and divorce. They say, well, then that's it. I'm divorced. I married somebody else who's divorced. I'm done. There's no hope for me. Look at what it says right here. But no, we understand that when we read the Bible, we read it not focusing on one individual passage, but looking about what the Bible says in its entirety. And the fact that Jesus, both in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19, clearly taught that there was a biblical justification for divorce. In Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19, he says it's very plainly that he says that sexual immorality is an acceptable biblical grounds for divorce. And later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul adds, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. So the Bible does give certain examples where divorce is biblically justified. Now, I always feel like it's important for me to explain here. The Bible doesn't say divorce is commanded, never. But there are situations where the Bible says it is permitted. Now, taking that, taking Scripture in entirety, we understand what Jesus said right here. We must regard that Jesus' statement here to refer to the one who divorces his wife without biblical cause and marries another. That one commits adultery. Because that's exactly what the scriptures say in other places. So when Jesus speaks of the one who divorces his wife, he's speaking about it in this particular context as the one who does it without biblical cause. Listen, I've, I've counseled many people over the years. Many troubled marriages. And many times I'm, I'm presented with a man or a woman and they want to know. 
do I have biblical justification for divorce? I tell, I ask him to explain the circumstances. I pray for some guidance from the Holy Spirit. I consult the scriptures. And then I wouldn't say every time because sometimes it's not entirely clear. But often I'm able to say, listen, I believe the Bible gives you permission or does not give you permission to have divorce in this situation. But I have to say this, in all the years that I've had ministry, I've never, never once commanded a person to divorce. I, I have virtually, I don't know if commanded is the right word, I have highly recommended, strongly suggested, virtually commanded separation at times. Absolutely. Where, where a woman is in such a dangerous, toxic situation that she should not be in that same home. But when it comes to divorce, the Bible gives certain allowance. And this is what I say to that person. I say, here are the biblical grounds for divorce. To my estimation, as you've described the situation to me, I believe that your situation fulfills one of these grounds for divorce. But I can't tell you that it's your place to divorce your wife or your husband. You need to pray about it. And you need to have a peace in your heart that even though you have this allowance, that this is what God wants you to take at this particular time. It's difficult. It's a mess, isn't it? And it's especially a mess in the aftermath of it all. But listen, this is the good news that God gives. That even in the face of that kind of mess, God can rebuild, God can restore, God can bless. But listen, this is the story that God wants us to hear. That even with the new covenant, his law doesn't pass away. I mean, that's the point. Under the new covenant, since the ministry of John the Baptist, God still cares about law. God still cares about obedience. But now we fulfill it on a different basis. We don't fulfill the law in order to please God, but because we have pleased him in Jesus Christ. We don't uh, obey God and, and submit ourselves to him in order to earn salvation, but because it's already been granted to us freely in him. That's an entirely different basis on which to serve God and to honor him. And I give one last thought here. Um, today was a big news day right, with the courts and all. And I find it interesting that as Jesus speaks very plainly here about this issue of marriage and divorce, that we know what the Bible says, or I do. I know what the Bible says about what constitutes a real marriage before God. There's no doubt about it, is there? I think it's very sad. I think it's tragic for our culture that the culture as a whole more and more seems to disregard what God defines as marriage, what God has as an ideal. But here's the confidence that we have is that God's word is like a mighty rock and the waves crash upon it again and again. And you know what? It's never the rock that's hurt. It's the waves that splash back. And I have a deep sorrow and and sympathy in my heart for people so energetically oppose the command and the plan of God because it cannot end well for them. So my own response as I think about all that is to think two things. Well, first of all, 
I'm going to be resolute in obeying and preaching God's word. And you know, the day comes on the horizon when you think that it's possible. I don't want to be overdramatic about it, but it's possible that that could get a person into trouble. Well, you know, my, my attitude is let the trouble come. It would be an honor. Honestly, it would be an honor to bear a fine, to bear a trial, to bear a penalty, to bear incarceration for the sake of faithfully preaching God's word. So that's the one thing. It sort of excites me to courage. It's got, hey, we've been praying for a first century church, haven't we? Well, we may get it. That's the one thing I think. But here's the other thing I think. I think this is a provocative thing, and what it will not do is it will not provoke me, it will not bait me to hate. It absolutely will not. And no matter what way that the culture goes, Jesus, I want you to fill my heart with such a love for everybody that I would never expect, never expect Christian behavior from people who aren't believers. Of course not. Instead, everybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ, I want them to know him. And I know this, they don't have to clean themselves up before they come to Jesus for their bath. So I won't allow it to bait me or to provoke me to hatred or a lack of love. No, I want the love of Jesus to reign supreme in my life. I I can't get away from the stories of some of the great martyrs of the church who suffered deprivation or incarceration or what I certainly don't expect to be martyrdom but you know just that but the the great martyrs of the church have and they did it with such love and with such peace that's what I want to do I want to be able to radiate the same thing so father we thank you thank you for your word thank you Jesus that you came and instituted a new covenant and uh, we, we pray that you'd help us to understand that even though it's glorious, and it is, Lord, it's the most glorious thing we know. But, Lord, um, it, it doesn't abrogate obedience. So help us to understand it and grab hold of that. In Jesus' name, amen.